Hello, I'm Caroline Carey. I'm a soul worker and soul doula. I have a deep understanding of the soul's journey from cradle to grave, and I've traveled between the veils of the spirit realms. I've studied the path it evokes, and I've come to understand why the majority of today's problems are rooted in the loss of spirituality. So my work, which is Middle Earth Medicine Ways, empowers people to find what is lost and to reclaim their own circle of strength by embodying their soul. And I do this by holding a space for healing and soul retrieval with shamanic skills, trance and conscious dance. I love creative writing and poetry. Please join me in listening to these wonderful teachers and soul workers, the facilitators and the guides of spiritual and shamanic work. They all have something very important to share and are a great gift to our communities. I've learned a lot from listening to them. I invite you to also. podcasters Caroline here with Soul Purpose. One of my interests has always been in what we call in shamanic terms the dark night of the soul and what that means and how we might experience that. I'm also interested in embodiment, particularly embodiment of the soul but also what the term these days means, embodiment, to be in the body, to be connected to ourselves more fully, um, to be engaged with movements, free expression of emotions, um, and to use certain exercises that might help with that. Mark Walsh is known as Mr. Embodiment. Fascinating guy. Um, runs the Embodiment Unlimited training, coaching, embodied meditation and hosts the Embodiment podcast. He also has led the Embodiment conference where there's been a thousand teachers, 500,000 delegates, um, many, many people worldwide, over 40 countries that have been able to listen to some of his teachings and uh, other people's expressions of embodiment. So here he is now sharing with us some of his experience, a delightful conversation. I was very, very happy to explore with Mark and I wonder what you think of all he has to share with us. This was an interview I did which was going to be for a film, a documentary about the dark night of the soul. Didn't quite get there, hasn't quite got there yet. It might still get there. I don't know. But if anybody's out there who'd like to produce that film, <laughs> this is some of the stuff that we are talking about. So um, have a listen for now. And yeah, let me know your thoughts. What is your dark night of the soul? Do you have a story to share on it? Have you experienced a dark night of the soul or a, or a rock bottom that has changed your life? 
I certainly have probably a few, but there's two or three that come to mind. Um, now, I'm, I'm not an expert on the terminology, and it seems that people use the terminology in different ways. You know, there's a sort of Jungian perspective, and then the Buddhists have their perspective on on kind of this, this kind of stages that you go through in meditation. And then there's just life crisis, you know, post-traumatic growth. We can look at it through a number of lenses, but there's certainly... Um, yeah, there's certainly a few I could talk about. So is there one in particular that comes to mind? Well, I mean, right now I'm pretty resourced, so I'm happy to go wherever. You know, let's go into the depths. I'm fit up for an adventure into the underworld today. So um, I'm feeling like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Big one that's uh, in my book that I sort of often talk about is I had a moment where my rock bottom really, you know, I've been drinking alcoholically for years and I knew it was a problem for a few years. The sort of fun had stopped. Um, also, I was just depressed, you know, on top of, I think both things were happening. I had a meaning crisis. Like I looked at the modern world and went, I don't know where my part in this is. Where's the meaning here? And I knew I loved Aikido, martial arts, but I really hit this moment of going, okay, unless I can find a way to do what I love and to make a contribution to have a life of purpose, I'm going to kill myself. And I, I debated that ever since I was 13 years old. My probably first big night was a first time I held a razor blade to my wrist was at 13 years old and I realized I came back from school and I realized it was a bit different from some people I realized I didn't really like the system which at that point was expressed by the school but was really the wider society structure that the school really represented in a very authoritarian way and had quite a bad time at secondary school and that was the first one I had at 13 but this big one at 27 in between I you know tried to hallucinogens, tried drugs, tried yoga, tried meditation, tried Aikido, martial arts. And the martial arts had really sort of felt like there was something in that. And I don't, I just kept following that sort of light. But eventually the sort of drinking got too far. The depression kind of really kicked in. My mum had cancer and she was like, I was in a house basically just bludging off her, uh, which for foreign listeners means I was sort of living rent free, basically. I was supposed to be taking care of her, but she didn't really need much care. Just like cook one meal a day kind of thing, you know? And um, so she had a brain tumor. I had serious alcoholism. I had tapeworms because I'd been doing humanitarian work in Africa. So if you could imagine on a nearly minutely basis, inch long white worms crawling out of your anus and slithering down your leg. Okay, so that was my daily life. Uh, and I'm, so I'm depressed, I'm suicidal, I'm alcoholic. I just feel like I'm soaked in poison because the way it works with alcoholism is, is the fun bits get shorter and then you keep drinking to try and prolong the fun bits. But the hangovers get longer and you have to drink more to get anywhere. And eventually those two points collide and it's just not even any, there's not even any release. There's not even, you know, because obviously alcohol in some ways probably kept me from killing myself. I'm grateful for alcohol for all those years. But then when those two points collide, you're screwed. And on top of that, I had a car crash and almost died. I wasn't drinking at the time, I should say, but I was, I was, I was overtaking a truck in a way which was probably a bit of death wish. And I ended up rolling in a field. The car was a total write-off. The police said I was lucky to be alive. I walked away with it, just a few bumps. So it was an existential wake-up call. Like, do you really want to die? Because you could have just died. And you know what, I just hit a point, I was getting drunk with a couple of friends, I woke up with yet another hangover 250, I'd been drinking alcohol since I was 13 or 14, uh, since I had that first dark night where I really went, shit, life's not what I thought it was, you know, typical teenage one really. Um, 
I tried to sort of run away from it. They call it geographicals, you know, working on ski resorts, working in bars in Ireland, having the party live, trying to sort of stay one step ahead of, you know, the consequences catching up. And it all, I was in this shitty village in East Anglia, which maybe for foreign listeners is sort of like Alabama or somewhere, you know, it's really like the fens. It's really like backwards, all cousins and hard drugs. And um, I just went, I've had enough. And there was a point of surrender. And at that point, I turned, I went absolutely fully into the despair and turned a corner. And my, that's 15 years ago. My life's never been the same since. And I've never had anything like that since. I've had a few mini ones, but nothing quite like that. So where did that take you? That, I mean, well, I hear where that took you, but what, what, what came out of that? You know, what, what, what was the key thing that brought you from that place of despair um, and brought you into a, a new way of thinking, being creating well if we look at it aikido of martial arts mindfulness embodiment i'd now call it more generally because i don't at that point i was fixated on aikido but i realized it's broader the thing that i really loved uh you know yoga conscious dance etc um that has always been a life raft that i was clinging to well you, you could imagine it as a point of light and i get shivers when i say it's like a point of light in the darkness and most people you speak to who are depressed <laughs> or they hate their life or there's some point of life trying to reassert itself. You know, I was just listening to Whiskey in the Jar, the traditional Irish song I used to sing with my dad, which isn't always good advice, that song. But it says some men find the light in nature. Some men find the light. And they actually use the word light in, in Celtic tradition. So some of them, that's my family Irish. They take some men find the light in, you know, he says, I find the light in drinking and womanizing, basically. Right. But he's talking about where you find the light. And for me, that was an Aikido. And I clung to that. And even when I was really unwell, I was still doing Aikido. You know, I'd sort of shake off my hangovers and go train. And um, I realized there was something in that. And I just decided to full heartedly follow that. And very quickly, I got within a week or two of being sober. One of my mentors who had a lot of faith in me, a guy called Don Levine, who I'm very grateful for, I used to run. He was the dean of Chicago University. He was Obama's boss at one point and um, used to run this organization called Aiki Extensions, which was about Aikido, but in life, which was my sort of specialist knowledge and interest. And he basically said, okay, you've got sober, that's good, about time, laddo, you know, about time, kiddo, bit of tough love, you know, imagine this sort of wily old Jewish professor. And he flew me to California where they were having a meeting. And before I was at my mum's washed up, I'd spent three years doing humanitarian work for him and his organization. And it was like, they were pulling me in to sort of give the reports from all the places I'd been. And, some of it was a little um, delicate, so it had to be done in, purpose, in person. So he flew me in and I was, there was a board there of all the IKEA extensions people. And there was people like Jamie Zimron, who was a professional golfer, Richard Strozzi Heckler, who's an embodied leadership guy, Paul Linden, who's my main mentor, who's a trauma guy. Um, just exceptional, Lance Giroux, who runs something called the Samurai Game, just exceptional human beings who'd done amazing things. And I, I looked at them and I went, you know what, they've done great things, but they're not really any different from me. They're just guys who like Aikido or girls who like Aikido, you know? They're just people, human beings, and they've worked hard and they've got some talents, but I've got talents. I knew I wasn't stupid, I was never stupid. And I went, I could probably make a contribution to the world around this Aikido thing and, you know, realizing it was bigger than trauma and embodiment. And then I just followed that and then life just got a lot better. <laughs> basically on every front health relationships happiness you know brilliant that's so yeah. nice that's such a great it's so, so great so you 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 found 
Aikido, but did you did you know about it before? Did you did you had you done any as a child? Was there anything that you've done as a child that was? Yeah, so the fact Aikido is really interesting. So I was kind of a poetry writing, slightly fey camp hippie as a teenager. I'm, I know it's hard to imagine with the rugged masculinity you see before you. Um, and I'd sort of gone into that sort of very sensitive mode and you're know, feeling and you're smoking weed and, you know, that kind of more yin mode, I might say. And actually, I lost my first love at, at sixth form, which is like high school. And um, with her, I'd actually had these mystical openings. I just thought that was sex, right? We had these mystical like, white lights, you know, oneness with the universe, feeling like pure love. Like now, I, you know, if I had that after a 10 day retreat, I'd be happy. But I had it every time I had sex at 16, you know, and I just thought that was what sex was. You know, I thought this is OK, great. This is I'm falling in love. I'm having sex for the first time in my life. This is amazing. I love this person. They're brilliant. And I really put it on the person, not realizing that any kind of love is just the gateway into the bigger love, you know, the, the, the non-personal. And I really, I wasn't smart enough at that point. I wasn't wise enough at that point to, to not fixate on her. So when she left me for a friend, I was devastated, devastated. And, you know, they didn't do anything wrong, just to be clear, if they're out there, no sort of harm, no foul on their front. But from my point of view, I was very attached. I'd confuse love and attachment, which I think is a common thing in our culture. And that mystical experience had just been wrenched away. And that's really when I started drinking, but also it's when I started seeking. Yeah, so I'm 17 years old at this point, and I, I hate it. I was working on a farm in East Anglia where I grew up. And it was really hard work, and it's it's you know working on the farm in all weathers. You know, if you can see those hands; they're still scarred from that farm. I've still got wrinkles from that farm on my hands. You know, like literally to this day. And I went, well, I don't want to do this for a living. This is hard work. You know, some of my friends worked on the farms. It's pretty working class rural area. So I said, like, I go to university. You know, I can get into university. So even though I was a bit of a fuck up and I used to sort of snort poppers in my exams and stuff, I, I still managed to get, you know, scrape a few grades to get into university. And I got to university and I'd also had a fight for the first time in my life with this friend of mine, very small scuffle, really barely call it a fight, but um, around this, this, this girl. And they're awesome humans, actually, if you're out there listening, love you both. And I've been through a whole journey with it. And Having had this fight, I went to university and I was, I was also dealing drugs, I should say, at the time. Um, so I was sort of morally bankrupt. And um, my lawyer says it's too far in the past. No one can, uh, it's, it's okay to say that. Anyway, so I was dealing drugs. And I was in this big city for the first time. And it was kind of scary, away from home, distraught, you know, heartbroken. And also going, okay, I might need to sort of defend my business. So I had a very practical consideration. And that's when I walked into an Aikido school for the first time in my life. And it was in the first week of university. Everyone else was drinking, freshest week. You know, I was doing that as well. But I went in and I saw the beauty of the yin-yang movement of Aikido. Yin, Aikido is, you know, done in these white and black kind of robes almost. And it's very flowing and very aesthetic. And it was powerful without being brutal. And it was, it was people lining up in rows. It was disciplined, which I needed so badly. Now people say, you're so disciplined, Mark. I'm like, no, I've learned discipline. I'm naturally a chaotic Irishman, yeah? And, uh, you know, I the wild rover kind of thing. And um, I saw that and I just went, I need that. And I, for all my time at university and afterwards, I barely missed a class, despite the fact that I was full-blown alcoholic by the second year of university. Uh, but because I was young enough to sort of shake it off, I still managed to train at eight o'clock in the evening, almost every evening. 
And um, yeah, so I had discovered that and that kept being a point of light. And I noticed the more I went towards that, like when I did an Aikido peace project in Cyprus with Paul Linden, Don and Strozzi, I went, oh, this feels amazing. This is what I should be doing, you know, but I hadn't worked out a way to make it a life. It was just the odd bit of my life. And then now I found a way to make what I really love is embodiment, which is the core of Aikido uh, and other practices. And I found a way to make that my daily life and talk to people like you and, you know, do practices and have, you know, great colleagues. And now it's daily. Helping others now to find their purpose. Yes, that's yeah. one of the things I do. Mostly I teach embodiment, but one of the parts of that is purpose courses. Yeah. And 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 that's, that's you know, for me, I came from, um, you know, my own rock bottom, my own challenges in life and worked through that. And dance was always my saviour. Dance was my solution. Yeah. A lot of the time to escapism, <laughs> to get away from it. I'm enabling. That's what I was going to ask you, because that de Aikido definitely did that for me. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, isn't it? So so as a little girl, three-year-old, I was a dancer. I was just, you know, it yeah. was just dance for me all the time and poetry and writing. So as I as I got older, you know, that was my solution then. Some of the time for escapism from the, the challenges of, of life, but also eventually it was like going back to... Um, to, to, well, I found five rhythms, basically, but it was going back to community, to dance, to be with others and to, to be held in the space of dance. And it was in that place that I started to heal start some of what had happened to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I recognised the solution, but I also realised it was my purpose. It was like yeah. I needed to share that. I needed to make that into a, a career, if you like. I'd never had a career. I'd been a mom. That right. was it. You know, I'd, I'd come from like... And lots and lots of enabling addicts and alcoholics and all the rest of it and bringing up my kids and da 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 da, da you know. Um, and and then, you know, that, that dance, that recognition of, oh, I'm going to train in this, I'm going to do this. Good. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I was going to do it. And that sense of purpose gave me something that I don't think the dance or anything else could have done. You've, got, you've got to actually contribute to the world. It's not enough just... Exactly, exactly. ...to get high in yoga or dance or Aikido or drugs or whatever, because that state chasing is just addiction by another means, and you'll need more and more of it, get less and less outcome. The meaning comes from the contribution to the world, not the inner side. The inner side's necessary, but it's not where the meaning comes in. I think for most... I can speak for myself, but I think also most people I've coached, so... So that's that's what I want, where I want to go with this. It's like the importance of purpose. Yes. The importance of you know finding what has been your own solution, what's been your savior, what's what's brought you back to life, and and then how you've turned that into contribution, um, and you know the the journey that it takes in order to do that, the belief in yourself, the the knowledge and understanding that you might have within you that you can do that, because yeah. a lot of us fall down in that area yeah, yeah this, a so lot of us have, don't have the confidence to just go i can do this and, and i see that with the marketing the marketing putting yourself out there i mean i've joined your marketing course it's fantastic and i'm learning a lot yeah um, that you know i've been winging it i've been winging it for nearly 30 years in the marketing yeah. thing into a meditation teacher last night who similarly is just very good at what he does but has been winging it and now he started to take it really seriously right. I mean, I've, I've been on a learning curve with all that, right? And when I coach people, we talk about yellow belt, orange belt, brown belt, black belt. So yellow belt is finding purpose. Orange belt is the really difficult one, is actually getting out your own way. 
Right, there's a whole body of work to be done there and that can be around money and being seen and taking up space and you know all sorts of baggage that we have you know and ever people look at me and go i'm super confident but you know what i'm crippled by lack of confidence some days and the only difference is it's less and less days over time right like i'm literally crippled by it some days can't get out of bed right but it's like over time i've learned to work with that same with money people look at me and they go wow you're so good at marketing i'm like well no one in my family was ever a business person you know, I grew up thinking that rich people were bad people. That's how I was raised. So, you know, I had to really learn that stuff. You know, when we did the embodiment conference and, um, you know, we had a budget of over a million, two million dollars, I think, in the end. It was terrifying to me. Terrifying. That wasn't normal to me. Now, some of my richer friends would be like, nah, two million, whatever. You know, but I, I grew that from twenty dollars to two hundred dollars to two thousand dollars to two hundred thousand dollars to two million. So it's a, it's a it's a um, something you can grow. Like you learn to meditate or learn to lift weights or anything. You know, there is a way out of it. And then just to complete the sort of, you know, the brown there's this brown belt stuff around actually experimenting. So it's not just about finding it internally. You've got to go do it in the world, right? And often I say, you can start a brown belt in a way. This is where the analogy falls down. It's martial arts analogy of belt system. Um, where you, you've got to try things. Like I did a lot of things that failed. You know, you mostly see my successes, right? You don't see the failures. Uh, there's two failures for every success. Um, and then black belt is actually, you know, is, is really doing the thing you want to do. And that is the beginning because it doesn't end when you find the thing. And even if you're doing it, you still have to, you're always a white belt on another level. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's my take on it. But I, I'm really curious to hear a sort of more shamanistic take, because I know that that's kind of your area. Tell me if I'm wrong. On the Dark Knight stuff, like, I'm super curious about that. I've got a Buddhist perspective I can offer you afterwards, maybe. But there's a, I'd love to hear a shamanistic perspective on it. Okay. Well, as a little girl, I was, I was into God. I was, uh -huh. you know, God was, was everything to me. Um, hated church, but I loved God. And I found God in the dance and I found rhythm. And that's, I think that's probably what led me to shamanism more than anything through the dance. And what I found in it was that I was, I was looking into other people's cultures all the time. Right. I went and danced with the Bushmen in South Africa and in Namibia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I danced with the, uh, the Kogis and, and, you know, went to some of their rituals. I drank ayahuasca. I did... I did a lot of these things that they, they were kind of interesting. I mean, I love Dancing with the Bushmen. I mean, absolutely. That is the ultimate, ultimate for me. They are the original dance. They are the original ecstatic dancers. It's just cool. I'd love to hear about that. That's... But I started to recognize that if I was, if I was really going the whole hog with this, then I was going to have to find out what shamanism meant in my own culture, the medicine of my own land. So I've spent the last, quite a long time, last years, I, I left all my teachers behind. I just found, no, this isn't where it's at for me. Yeah. I really want to understand what's here. And so when I've worked with, with shamans and the, like, we've talked about the dark night of the soul, we've talked the same thing that we talk about in, in mental health awareness here. We talk about the same thing that I've heard um, drug, and al drug addicts and alcoholics talk about in the rooms about you know what's happened the places they've gone to in themselves where it's just been there's been nothing left you know there's there's nothing there for them to hold on to and that's their dark night of the soul that's their rock bottom 
So I started to learn this other language about how does this fit in this culture? Mm -hmm. Now I still, my roots are in shamanism and shamanism, you know, I, I bang my drum. I, I, you know, I use a drum beat because I've always needed that drum beat in order to access certain, you know, um, states of consciousness and awareness. It's a beautiful thing. I use it in the dance. Um, and, and I use dance now as, as, you know, as the original, um, shamanic, experience to awaken consciousness with that's that's what it is for me it's not a practice for me i gave up five rhythms i gave up movement medicine because i didn't want to do a practice i'm not I'm, I'm totally undisciplined i don't really do a practice at all but i dance and i share the dance with others and i know where it can take people to in the psyche i know that it can help with soul retrieval i'm big into soul retrieval but what's that language here what do people understand about yeah. that here for me, it's a completeness of, of self, everything, bringing everything back to yourself. So all the parts of us that we've lost or hidden, which is, you know, in shamanism, we would talk about it as a part of me that's missing, that's gone to mm -hmm. the spirit realms. And you'd say that to somebody here, well, yes, part of you has gone, gone away up there somewhere. It's like, really? You know, well, actually, it's buried deep, deep inside. Okay, different point. Yeah. And that that beautiful light, and and a lot of people talk about the shadow, or what's what's in that, what's that my sh my shadows at work, or whatever. No, it's our golden light, our, our essence, our soul parts that are hidden in the shadows that we need to reclaim. So so we have a dark night of the soul. We have that that yeah that really desperate deep dark place where we we are forced to go in. You know, to feel the pain, to feel all the emotions, to feel everything that's been going on for us, that we've hidden away, that we've tried to overcome by being superheroes in the world. Um, and and it's that that we start to access through the pain, through the challenges. And the way that I work is to invite creativity. So dance, writing, poetry, singing, mm. um, you know, anything at all that people can do that's creative architecture. Um, you know, mathematics, it's all creative stuff. So we access ourselves through creativity and, and, and the, the part of us that really knows who we are. And, and then it's like finding the resource, finding the tools, finding the Aikido, the dance, whatever it is, to bring ourselves back through that channel so that we then find our purpose. And it's that finding of purpose that is then our connection back into society, which is what you talk about, yeah. And quite often it's the shaman that starts to, does all the magical things and helps somebody to retrieve their soul, yeah. And that and that is a beautiful process. But in my experience, I have to do it myself. It's a bit like saying, you know, other people can help addicts, you know, it's well actually, uh, yeah, the addicts that. help them. They need the experience to be in connection with shared experience, all of that. That's what we're looking for. Do you, do you think there's an issue kind of in society of people not going to the dark night of the soul? Like there's a lot of things in society that are very pleasant, very distracting. There's a lot of entertainment. Like if, if anything, I feel very grateful that I was able to hit this rock bottom point. Yes. And I, I kind of go, for me, some of the normal things just didn't really work for some whatever reason. They just didn't really cut it. But I, I knew a lot, I know a new lot. So I still know some it was sort of low level miserable haven't really been inspired they're not really fully alive they're not really on purpose they're not really loving their life just from a happiness point of view but they're, but they're they're not willing to go to the difficult dark place 
to get like the sort of the way out is through the darkness right so it's kind of like they stay in this low level of misery and keep sort of topping up on entertainment and distraction so that strikes me as one of the kind of key pieces here it, it, it's absolutely and and there's nothing you can actually do unless people are willing to go there unless people actually come to a place in themselves where they're so desperate there's something something has to happen to to flip the switch and say i can't carry on like this yeah well for me i had a sort of confrontation with death quite early in life with sort of losing fa close family members and then working in war zones so i think the, the the confrontation with death kind of makes it a lot harder to do that and the sort of the hidden i think this is pretty shamanic as well traditionally you know death was much more present and we've hidden it away in our culture which i think is a real pity despite the many wonderful things about our culture you know that's one that i think is a pity that it's hidden away and um i think i hadn't had it hidden away and also just typologically i have a certain personality type that just wasn't maybe it's adhd type thing just wasn't willing to be, do a boring job I found that torturous in a way that I think it was just mildly annoying to some of my friends. Um, so yeah, I think the, the gift of desperation they sometimes talk about, don't they? And I think also, you know, is it, I'm wondering, is it important to differentiate between a sort of a crisis where you're moving from one stage to a better stage and simply just being unwell, you know, because I do know people who are just unwell. And, you know, my friend David Lukoff managed to get spiritual emergency put in the DSM, which was fantastic. But there's stuff in the DSM that should probably stay there as well, just as sort of, you know, people not being very well. And I, it's interesting, like, where's that line between just sort of sickness and pathology and someone who looks very sick and maybe suffering a lot, but it's a stage. And, you know, in the Buddhist model, there are stages you go through that are sometimes called dark nights in Buddhism. They're a little bit different from this sort of Jungian or recovery perspective, uh, are very definite stages and there's very definite things. Like Daniel Ingram, for example, is brilliant on this. Uh, most of the um, Burmese kind of Theravadans have got models of this, really quite concrete models. And like, at this stage is the dissolution of self. At this stage, this happens. And it's, I've also been through a couple of those through intense meditative practice. And they're a little different than what we were talking about before, though they were certainly disruptive. You know, like I had a month where I was just, just physically uncomfortable for no obvious reason. You know, a month where I couldn't concentrate. Uh, a month where I felt like I was coming apart. And my luckily I had good meditation teachers who were like, yeah, keep meditating, don't worry. This is gonna, this is this will, this too will cease. And uh, it did, but had I not had that guidance, had I just accidentally stumbled into that meditative stage through as people do on 10 day Vipassana retreats and then get kicked back into life, you know, then I think I would have had a problem. So I think it's useful to have a you know mental health perspective or recovery perspective. Or, sort of Jungian depth psychology perspective, a Buddhist perspective, you know, developmental perspective, like Ken Wilber stuff. There's, there's, we're not really talking about one thing here, I don't think. We're talking about a bunch of things. I think through human history, there's only ever been a small percentage of people who are willing to be afraid, terrified even. You know, I had a medicine experience not long ago in Mexico, and I'm like, I am dying spiritually. This is not fun, right? And it's like that the other side of it was profound, but I had a certain faith the other side of it would be worthwhile because I'd had other reference experiences. Um, you know, I'm in traditions that kind of have give orientating maps to certain experiences and things. I think if you don't have orientating maps, you don't have guides, it's not normal. Plus it's just really hard and unpleasant. So why would you? You know, we live in a comfort culture. Consumerism is built on comfort and it's deeply uncomfortable to come apart and put yourself back together again. Like who the fuck wants to do that? I think the question, Caroline, is not why does most people not do it. I think the question really is like, why do some weird, crazy people like us do do it? 
like like and I, maybe it's just necessity you know it's like the other stuff stops working so i yeah i wouldn't have become i i wish i could just sit home and watch tv and drink beer that would be brilliant a nice normal life you know part of me goes fuck all this spiritual stuff so um yeah but it's just not really on the table for me anymore that's great that's a lovely answer like that great so all these people who are coming to you now you know you're really encouraging people to find their purpose how much attention do they need to give to their life story with that uh there's a couple of exercises we use so telling your life story even better writing it a few times telling it with a committed listener and writing it. i'd recommend both actually because they process slightly differently with social witnessing versus writing not on a computer either um they are great exercises um, I mean, people can get stuck in their story, particularly if they've taken on this modern trauma narrative. So I'm extremely trauma informed. My main mentor is a trauma healer, um, trauma therapist. But but the modern narrative is like you're broken. It's really bad. There's nothing you can do. It's really disempowering. Many of the trauma narratives that I've come up with, particularly if they're sort of combined with sort of social oppression narratives, which is like, you know, you've had it hard. And there's truth in that. Right. There are other groups of people who have had it harder than other groups, you know. Uh, but I see those two narratives combining in some really unhealthy ways in the modern world um, to sort of stop people feeling empowered to do it. But so your story, you've got to be a bit careful of um, telling it in a way that creates meaning and hope is the important thing. And everyone's story can be made meaningful. You know, post-traumatic growth is a thing as part of trauma healing to sort of see how you can help others. You know, I meet so many people and their gift is coming from their pain. You know, it's just follow your bliss. It's bullshit. It's follow your pain, right? Like, so you're bliss too, but it's it's most people's, like, my pain of the education system I was in makes me an educator today wanting to give a better kind of education, a more holistic kind. You know, our pain, our cult, my Irish cultural pain is involved with my life purpose, you know? So I'm not saying these traumas don't exist, Um but we've got to be a little bit careful around story. But yeah, it can be right narrative writing and story. Like the interview we've done today, for example, is motivating, inspiring for me because it orientates me to this, this, the recovery and the story through the pain. You're now doing like marketing stuff. You know, you, you do this like helping people find their purpose, right? So now I, I, didn't, I didn't do that bit with you because I, I, I know my purpose. Yeah, I, know, but, yeah. I know what it is. I've created a a model of work I, I you know I've got my books I've got got me people on board but my marketing is you know like really difficult to really mark you know to really mark I'm getting better with, with your help I'm definitely getting better um <laughs> I could do I could do better I know that um and you know there's a part of me that really doesn't like it very much yeah that's, that's okay it's, it, it, well it's 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 like I don't I've always done it you see that's the interesting thing for me because it's being creative it's like, oh, it's nice making that nice flyer. Now, when I when I started, I was living in Ireland, right? I started being a five rhythms teacher. We didn't have Facebook, internet-y type stuff then. Oh. None of that. Yeah, we didn't even have, I didn't, I started five rhythms teaching with, with tape recorders. Yeah. Tapes. Changing tapes over from one song to the next. We made flyers and we had to stuff envelopes in those days. Hundreds of envelopes. You stuff your envelopes, write the name of who it's going to and send them out. Now you put it on Facebook. You know, and, and in some ways that was much easier in, in a sense because you knew exactly what you were doing. You stuffed an envelope with something, you sent it to somebody's address, you got your kids to put stamps on. And yeah, yeah. That, that was very, very straightforward. 
And then it got complicated because then we had to put it on Facebook and Twitter and social media stuff and send out emails and we had to learn all that technology stuff. And all that technology stuff was designed for scientists or, or the, the army or whatever you want to call it, wasn't it? I mean, it was, that's what it was all about. We were not meant to be able to understand it. Now you're asking people to get good at this, you know, and to feel confident and, you know, put yourself out there. You even said at one point, you said it's a sin not to, you know, not to share yourself. Tell me more about your side of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm an embodiment teacher. That's my calling. That's my passion. That's what I'm great at. That's what I love. Okay. But what I noticed as an embodiment teacher is I train students in embodiment coaching or embodiment yoga. These are our like core offers as a company. It's my core work. But my students were just horrible at selling their services. Right. Now, I am average. I'm, I'm the one-eyed man in the land of the blind. I am very average at marketing, but I'm good enough. And I had a natural bit of a talent for it. It's not my calling. It's not what I love. I dislike every hour of my company day where I'm in marketing meetings. Okay. Um, however, I realized it was really necessary for myself and for them, for my students. Because if you, otherwise you can't do what you love, you can't reach more people. So all marketing is really is telling people how you can help them. Now, it doesn't have to be complicated. It can seem complicated, but it really, you don't have to do Twitter. You don't have to do many of these things people tell you you have to do. You find things that you like. And as you say, it's mostly around three skills, empathy, creativity, and courage. So if you can listen to your audience, that's 50% of marketing. Okay, then you need to make some kind of creative offer or creative way to reach them. It could be stuffing envelopes, could be Facebook, could be 10 other things, yeah, 20 other things. So you don't have to do all of them. In fact, I'd advise not to try and do all of them. Yeah, you can still do envelope stuffing. You can still do that today. It's not necessary to do Facebook unless you want to. Um, so you find a creative way to reach people, creative way to inspire them about what you do. Uh, you build relationships and connection. That's mostly what marketing is, building trust, building relationships. And then you do have to have the courage to be bold and put yourself in the world and show yourself and be seen. That's the thing. Yeah, that skill, the skill of that. When somebody's been so down and out, so traumatized in their life but they're trying to make a difference they're trying to to change what's the best route for them to start to think about how am i how can i touch others how can i you know that's two years of work so i for example i coached as a mentee a girl from a really working class background had a lot of negative sort of images on top of that she'd become a buddhist and a socialist which really didn't help her run a business and she really had a lot of baggage and a lot of problems and a lot of self-esteem issues. Uh, and it was a couple of years work for her to work her way through that. So if you're really rock bottom, do something small. Don't have to do it in a big way. You know, my first training was for a, with a friend of mine who works in a little charity in Cambridge. I knew they'd be a friendly audience. I did it for free. And uh, my mate told everyone I was brilliant. Got lots of love and support beforehand. I was really nervous but I did this one hour training for 10 people. I mean, now I could do that in my sleep, you know, but I was so nervous at the time, but I built up and I built up and I had little knockbacks on the way as well. You know, the first time I did a talk for over a few hundred people in Russia, I was terrified and all these people looking at me on stage, you know, and the first time I did a zoom call for a thousand people, I was scared. Now, if, if less than a thousand people turn up now, that's a bad day, you know? So it's, 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 you build it up gradually, like anything else, you know, you get good support and you have friends and you have mentors and you, you, you experiment and you find what you love and you take your ego out of it. Just be of service. You can't get nervous if you're being of service. What do you see as the ego? 
well, it's an, another one that's defined differently by different groups, Buddhists and Jungians and the rest of it. So what I mean by that is when people are overly focused on themselves, they get nervous because it's what does the world think of me? It's actually quite narcissistic to be nervous, you know, um, as opposed to how am I being of service? Like right now, if I'm focusing on how am I coming across in this interview? Am I looking good? How's my picture? Then I start getting nervous. But if I just go, right, what can I say that might be useful for people? I don't even think about me, don't even worry about it. So is there anything else you, you feel is really important from your story, from your experience, that would be that would really benefit others? Okay, let's, let's talk a little bit about faith, because this is a very uncool word in the modern world. Um, so faith could mean sort of, you know, believing what you're told in the religion you grew up in, which probably isn't a smart thing. Yeah. Um, however, faith in oneself and faith in whatever bigger thing you believe in, why or inner power, um, I think it's really necessary to get through a dark night is that glimmer of light, whether you've seen it in Aikido or dance or wherever. Sometimes it comes, you know, I just had a mother who was consistently supportive and believed in me. And even when I was clearly a wretch, she would look at me as if I had potential. And I think that's a, one of the things that's really touching me at the moment is looking at my students with the, as the potential they are, not the current reality. And when someone else, someone else can hold that flame for us when we're in a bad spot, right? They can look at us as having potential as not, you know, like Don Levine did for me, William Smith did for me. These are some of my mentors, Paul Linden did for me. And then when I kind of came good, they were like, told you so, you know, I was like, I knew it. And actually I probably came bigger than even, they, even you know, Paul's incredibly proud of me. He'll say, I can't, I can't believe what you did with the conference. You know, it's amazing. But I always knew you had it in you. So I think if we, we doing that for other people is a huge gift, even if it's just one person in your life who's got that, like a great cool auntie or something, you know, everyone's got a cool auntie or uncle or whatever, you know, somewhere there. And um and for, for, to have faith in, in, in that, that there is a way through and it is important for people to hear these stories when they're, because they look at successful people. You've written God knows how many books, you know, now I think it was eight books or something. So <laughs> Only six. Okay. So you've written six books and I founded an embodiment school and, you know, written two books and all the rest of it. All the, the podcasts and people look at us on stages or look at us doing courses and go, wow, they've really got their shit together. And that's not a fair comparison. So I want to say anyone listening to this, don't compare what you see on the outside now with what was going on in the inside in the past, which you cannot see. That's not on Instagram. No one's putting themselves snot nosed on the bed surrounded by McDonald's on Instagram, you know? So it's, it's um, yeah, be careful of those comparisons. Have a little bit of faith. And even if it's just the possibility of 1% of faith, that's all you need. You don't need to be like, I'm going to be amazing. You don't need to blow yourself up like Tony Robbins. It's, it's not necessary. But um, yeah, I think that's the last thing I'd say about it. That's really beautiful. I love that. that that's, and having that one person, I love, love hearing about your mother. And did you have a good relationship with your dad as well? Was that In the end, not so much when drunk growing up. Okay. But, um, we he we by the time he died we he was at my wedding he was proud of me we got on well we'd forgiven each other our different things against each other um so that uh, masculine healing process was definitely part of my journey um so I, you know i was i was lucky in many ways with my parents and in some ways you'd probably look at it i won't give all the details and say i was not particularly lucky but certainly having a mother who believed i could do anything and healing that relationship with my father both of those two things were I'd say critical for my maturing as a leader and as a person doing what I do. 
Oh, that's 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 really beautiful. Yeah, I, I love stories about how people got on with their parents and you know what the relationship was like there because I think it really ties into the the journey of for sure. And ancestrally, you know, I could tell another story about my grandparents coming over in the war from Ireland and risking their lives and the prejudice that they got as Irish people in that time. You know, when it was no blacks, no Jews, no Irish. You know, and by being terrified in the war, working on ships, which was really dangerous and coming from a barely literate peasant background and my grandmother wasn't allowed to go to university because she was a woman and they said fuck this let's get a better life so they went to you know they fought in the war to get places in England you know she was a nurse he was a sailor and you know like the ancestral piece for those who are interested in that I think it's really lovely to reflect like you know I taught a workshop that I had 50 people from 50 countries with it you know like you if you'd have told my peasant great-grandfather farming in rural Ireland and fishing in rural Ireland, you know, in Cork, back in the day, maybe he's never walked more than 10 miles from his house in his life, that I'd teach in 50 countries around the world, I'd be on Zoom, I'd, you know, you know, you'd have to explain what that was, obviously. But it's like the idea that I'd have a book published, and my granddad could literally just about write his name, you know, so we were standing on the shoulders of our ancestors, and um, gratitude comes from that. And a certain level of quiet responsibility i think comes from that reflection too mm, and we do live in the best time ever to have been alive as a human being yeah that, that's there's a... no period in history i would trade this for i have little fantasies about being a musketeer or a samurai occasionally but but you know after a couple of days of living in you know 17th century paris i think i'd be like fuck this get me i want to i want Deliveroo in brighton thanks you know so um i think we, we have an amazing opportunity with the internet with the world even relatively poor people can start businesses you know like and it's not global yet though i hope it will become but certainly anyone living in the developed west you know, we have we have opportunities around trauma healing we have opportunities around technology you know i don't need to tell you that as a woman is probably you probably wouldn't have wanted to be born 200 years ago right like so for 50 percent of the population it's not ideal it's not perfect but it's way better so let's have a little gratitude as well i think yeah yeah Beautiful. Thank you so much, Mark. I mean, you've really given me a treasure of stuff, you know. It's really... where, where did your grandparents live in Cork? Oh, God, I've been there as a child, but I'm not. it's a little village. It's not Cork City. It's really the middle of nowhere. So I forget exactly where. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, that... I, I lived in Ireland for 17 years, so I, and I was down in little fishing villages and the like. So My mum's side from Wexford. I lived briefly in Galway. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, it's in my bones, you know, and for better and for worse, like intergenerational trauma and all the rest of it, too. But yeah, um, yeah. you brought out the best of me. So <laughs> about my story. So um, I think this was maybe the mood I was in, but you're interviewing, too. So um, it's different when you get interviewed by a stranger you don't trust whereas someone you've met a few times or seen a few times. It's very different. Yeah, thank you so much, Mark. There we have it. Mr. Embodiment, Mark Walsh from Brighton, UK, has holds a fascinating platform and body of work. Um, do look him up. I'll put some links and bits of information in the box below. Do connect. And um, I, hopefully I'll be talking to Mark again soon. As I said, this was some interviewing that took place for a film that we were going to create or that we are creating but um, is yet to be manifest. If you're interested in the dark night of the soul and soul purpose, do join us in conversation and share your story. Bye for now. Thank you so much for listening right to the end. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. 
And remember, you can be in touch with myself or this speaker. My website is middleearthmedicine.com. We have a wonderful membership platform that you can join for just £5 a month. And we have lots of recordings and interesting information that we can share with you there, plus meeting online with regular groups. You can also find the details of our speaker in the box below with their links, their websites, and a little bit of information about them. Thank you for joining me and being part of this Middle Earth Medicine community. I hope you'll listen to our next show. Please follow, share, like, whatever you can do to help this community to grow. We really appreciate you. Thank you.